0: The simple title to today's message doesn't have to be repeated to you, it's there in the bulletin, but I do that also for points of the tape, is Jesus' arrival, or arrives at the feast. It is absolutely amazing, I think the first thing that I want to call to your attention so you look at it as we're going through the text, is the focus of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are a people that are easily distracted. We talk about children having short attention spans. And they do. It takes a lot to keep them interested and keep them occupied. But we ought not to point the finger so fast. Because as adults, we very often lose focus of why we're here, what we're doing, because our lives are absolutely saturated. I can speak for myself, absolutely saturated from the time we get up to the time that we go to bed with activities, many, many which are essential, many, many which actually are not and distract us from what we should be doing. And we are so out of focus. But I want you to notice right away that the Lord Jesus Christ in this text is so focused. He's so focused on the Father's will. The Lord Jesus Christ is absolutely focused on the program of God. He is focused on obedience to God's commands. And it is obvious from his ministry, I mean to say that to you is not new information, it's not startling to you, but how we can see it in this chapter, chapter 7. He is not swayed away from God's plan, he is not swayed away from obedience, he is not swayed away from the will of the Father by the pressure of his own family as we saw already. The pressure of his own family does not sway him from his focus. The pressure of the crowd's desires, the desires of those around him that are putting pressures on his life all the time does not sway him from the Father's will. Nor is he even swayed by his own emotions though it's not in our particular text. We know from the garden of Gethsemane, that his own emotions were overwhelmed by what was in front of him. And yet he cried out and said, nevertheless, not my will be done, but thy will be done. And he was so focused on doing what he was here for, which he will give account to, to the father, that nothing, family, crowds, own emotions could not deter him. He stayed on course. And I want to encourage us, because we need to be encouraged to stay on course. We are encouraged, for example, in the Word of God. All of this is leading to the text. We are encouraged in the Word of God to walk worthy of the calling to which we've been called. We profess to be Christians. Let's see it. We are called to be imitators of Christ. The very thing that we're looking at right here, we are called to do. If you profess the name of Christ in chapter 5 of Ephesians, you are called to be an imitator of the one that has bought you. And so am I. We are encouraged in scripture to seek the things that are above and not the things of this world which we learn from the accounts in the Gospel have choked out so many from their focus in doing what they should be doing. We are encouraged to walk circumspectly, being alert to everything that is around us, positive and negative. We are encouraged to redeem the time, to realize this is it. The world realized that. This is our opportunity. Every time somebody takes public office, every time something happens with a new job, people usually come out with some type of statement or they get this new situation that this is our time. This is my time. Folks, as believers in Christ, with your life right now, this is your time. Redeem the time. We are told not to be overtaken by the cares of this world. We are told to be filled, or if you will, be controlled, because that's what it means, with the Holy Spirit of God. And yet, if we're honest, while we have those encouragements, while we have those exhortations, sometimes it seems so hard. Sometimes it seems even impractical. And sometimes it seems unattainable to us as we walk through this life, because of all that is going on. Yet I want to encourage you this morning, as the Lord Jesus Christ was focused, we too can be that focused in every area of our life, whether that be individually, in our family, on in the work environment, in the local church, whether it's in our neighborhoods, we can be that focused. How's that possible, Pastor Dan? Well, because the word of God tells us, because he's empowered us. He has equipped us with the Holy Spirit. There is no believer that is without the Holy Spirit. Scripture's clear on that, by the way. If you've trusted in Christ, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. Thus, you have been equipped to accomplish that which God wants you to accomplish. It can be accomplished by yielding to the Spirit of God every day, in every decision, in every circumstance, Over those outside pressures, over all those other things, including your own emotions and my emotions. It can be done by putting on the armor of God. None of us forget to dress every morning that we get up. Very few of us ever think about the spiritual armor as we get out of bed, putting on the helmet, putting on the breastplate, putting on everything. We don't usually think of it until we're well into the day, if we think of it. But we can have victory. We are told for, uh, we are told to hide God's word in our heart that we might not sin against Him. We are told to draw near to God that He might draw near to us. I've already mentioned the filling of the Holy Spirit and to uh, be controlled by Him. We are told to be remembering that we know whom we've believed and are trusting in. And so what I want to say to you right away is we can be focused and we can be victorious just like the Lord Jesus Christ, is in this text. This is not something that's impractical. It's very easy to look at the Lord Jesus Christ and to say, well, he's the Son of God. He can do that. I can't. We are called to do the same thing. Actually, I could stop the message right here and go home, and I think we have enough to chew on. That's the truth. And and what we need to see is we can have victory in every area of our life. Prior to the text, in verses 1 through 9, and it's important to lead to this is all together. Uh, all the way through chapter 8, actually. We found ourselves in the feath- Feast of Booths, or Tabernacles, from verse 2. That will continue through chapter 8. These two chapters are dealing with that feast. In the first nine verses, actually, we were getting a picture before the feast actually took place. It was the preparation for the feast. And what had happened is his brothers, verse 3, that is, he had a family, we talked about that last week, Remember, verse 5, they did not believe on him. They had not yet trusted in him. As we dealt with God's timing, we saw that eventually they did come to trust in Jesus' as Savior, at least some of them, from what we can tell and tradition would tell us others did as well. But they did not believe on him at this time, and they wanted him to leave the area of Galilee, to go up to the area of Jerusalem and display himself publicly. That's important to our text again this morning. He wanted to be, they wanted him to display himself publicly to make an announcement so that he would attract the crowds because basically his popularity was diminishing. People were leaving him. Why? Because he was focused on doing what he was supposed to be doing. And people were leaving him. So in verses 3 and 4, they encouraged him to do that. However, Jesus in verses 5 through 8 made simple and clear what we're talking about here. That he was focused on God's timing. My time is not yet at hand. His time, even to go up to Jerusalem, was not according to man's time schedule, not according to peer pressure in the family, not according to um, the multitudes of people at all. But he was on God's time plan. He was on God's calendar and would stay focused to that. He was also hated because he exposed, verse 7, the deeds of the people. No one likes that. No one likes to be exposed for the way they are, or to have sin exposed in their life, or their deeds exposed in their life. It's embarrassing. And it brings conviction. And because he did that, he was hated. And we know that. And so he stayed as we left off. He stayed, it actually was two weeks ago, because we had the missions conference. In verse 9, he stayed in Galilee, and that's where we found it last time. So we pick it up in verses 10 through 13, and we look at the anticipation of his coming and the divisions that were there. Let me remind us that as we come to verses 10 through 13, there are different groups of people at the feast. First of all, and I want to highlight a couple of things again, first of all, there's his family. His family has gone up. His brothers, and probably Mary would have gone up, Was Joseph there? We don't know for sure. Some believe he was dead. Some of the texts that we've already studied would indicate that he was probably around a lot longer than tradition would hold that he might not have been. But at any rate, his family had gone. But according to what we saw already in verse 5, his brothers are still there in verse 10, and they don't believe on him. So they're not attracted to him yet. They're not there to follow him, but they're there. The second group that we have there is the Jews. We can see that very clearly in verse 11, the Jews therefore. We see it in verse 13, for fear of the Jews. And what is this group? This group is probably the religious leaders. Why would I say that? Again, verse 1, we see that the Jews were seeking to kill him. And if just for one second you can go back to chapter 5, verse 18, it'll have relevance to the message particularly next week, but you can see it here. If you go back to chapter 5, verse 18, this is the miracle that he's going to refer to when we get into verses 21 forward. For this cause the Jews were therefore seeking all the more to kill him. Why? Because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but he also was calling God his Father, making himself equal to God. I don't know if you remember that text. But that's the healing of the impotent man, which is going to come back up in verse 21. And it was the Jewish leaders who were taking issue with that. And I would also say that because if you go back to chapter 7, verse 23, you see that that's the issue, and we'll deal with that, Lord willing, next week. If a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath, uh, that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because I made an entire man well on the Sabbath? And I believe that's referring back to chapter 5 and what I just pointed out to you. So it's probably the Jewish leaders there. And then we got this third group. So you got the family that doesn't believe on him. You've got the Jews who are looking to kill him. And then you've got the multitudes. Where do we find that? Verse 12. And it says, and there was much grumbling among the multitudes. Well, what's this group like? This is probably Jews, the other Jews that were there. Proselytes, certainly. There may have been some Gentiles in their midst though they're not there for the feast, the Gentiles. But this group is basically confused. Why do I say that? Because some saying he's a good man, others saying no, he's leading the the multitude astray. So they're confused and they're complaining. How do we know that? They're grumbling, verse 12. So the Lord is going up into the midst of this group of three different people, none of which are interested really in his program. What they are interested in is their own desires, and they're resistant, and some haven't believed, some want to kill him, and the others are just totally confused as to what's going on. And yet, nevertheless, we find that he goes up to Jerusalem. We find that in verse 10. So his brothers are there, they've gone up to the feast. Then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as it were in secret. So he goes up a little bit later, and by the way, this is the last time that he is in Jerusalem. I mean, sorry, Galilee. He leaves Galilee where he's been centered, and is much in the other accounts and the gospel accounts that deal with his ministry in Galilee. But for our text in John, he's done. He's leaving Galilee, in the area where he grew up. He's leaving it for good, and he goes up, not publicly. What does that mean? Not publicly. Well, let me make it very simple for you. Zechariah chapter nine, verse nine, is a passage that has been, will be fulfilled on what we know as Palm Sunday. In which he will come in on the donkey and he will be publicly addressed as the Messiah. And they will be screaming out that this is the Savior, basically, that has come. He's not coming in that sense right now. He's not coming with a public announcement. He is not coming with the caravan that would have been involved that his brothers would have gone up in, if you will, by application even to today. He doesn't go with advanced ticket sales. You know, come to this concert, come to this meeting at so and so auditorium where we'll have uh, this ministry and this uh, public speaker that will give the gospel and everything else. He doesn't come up that way. He's not selling tickets for an appearance. He's not advertising so that believers and unbelievers can just come in globs of people and come to this big event at all. Here he is the savior of the world. Here he is the one that all people need to believe on and he sticks to God's plan. It doesn't matter what the pressures of the world are. And he comes up, as it says, in secret, verse 10. Now, what in the world does that mean? This isn't that he's hiding. <laughs> this isn't that he's gone behind the rocks, and he's hiding behind the palm trees, and he's going up in that way. It's not that he's changing his disguise, you know, so that he can escape their appearance, so he dresses differently. So they, that's not what it means at all. In fact, if you really want to get the meaning, you look at verse 14. When he says in secret, it can't mean that he came up hiding or that he came up by disguise because when you get to verse 14, he's in the middle of the temple teaching. So he's still showing himself publicly. Then what does it mean in secret? It simply means quietly, and I I would prefer that word. That's really what it means. He didn't go up with a public caravan. He comes up without a show he comes up without an announcement, he comes up and into their midst and he does it in a very quiet way. They're already involved in this feast and there's big celebration and everybody's looking for him expecting him to come up with a caravan of his family and all of this and he doesn't, he just goes up privately on his own, that's all, in a very quiet way and what he finds is people that are looking for him now as we progress in verse 11. They're looking and they're divided The Jews, therefore, were seeking him at the feast. The Jews, we already said, probably the religious leaders, when you look at the context, and you look at the going all the way back even to chapter 5. And they were saying what? Where is he? Why? No doubt, they're glad. They're hoping he's going to be there, because he's now on their turf. He would now be in their environment in Jerusalem, in which they have the power to take him, because why? They want to kill him. They want to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, while the Lord Jesus Christ is not here physically on the earth, and we don't see people going around with guns and so forth, don't you kid yourself for one minute. Our world, our country, our population is absolutely saturated with wanting to kill the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, with getting him out of everything they can with having nothing to do with him whatsoever and even squashing anybody that wants to talk about him. So that's still kind of going on in that sense. But they want to kill him. And in verses 12 and 13, very quickly, as I've already said, there's confusion and division. Some are saying, the multitudes are saying, he's a good man. Others are saying he's leading the multitudes astray. And so you might sit there this morning and say, "Uh, well, I like the group that says he's a good man. Both of them are wrong, really. One saying he's a good man, the other one, if you want to cut right through it, is saying this guy's a liar. He's a liar. He's leading people astray. He's not telling the truth. Why do I say that they're both wrong? That's not who he is today, and that's not who we need to convey people to, uh, convey him to people. We need to understand, as I've preached in the last two months several times, people today will accept a certain type of Jesus but they won't accept the Jesus of the Bible. And they needed to see he wasn't just a good man. Jesus Christ was the promised one of the Old Testament. He is the Messiah. He is the one and only Savior. If you are here today and you want to think that Jesus was just a good teacher, or a good man, or a good public figure to look to, and that's as far as you go, it's not enough. He's the Messiah. Without him, you have no salvation. Without him, there is no redemption. Without him, there is no fulfillment of scripture. Without him, there is no earth that you're living on. Without him, there there is none of us, even physically, because he's the creator of the universe. There is no hope for mankind without the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not a way to God. He's the only way to God. He's not a way of salvation. He's the only way of salvation. He is the truth. People don't like that type of Jesus. I've spoken recently, just this past week, on two occasions with different people who both said that the world just wants to be in heaven. Who would not want to be in heaven? But then when you talk to them about the Jesus of the Bible, to them that's another story. And they're, well, I want to be in heaven. Yeah, I want to be with God. But I don't know. I don't think he's really the only way. He's a good man. You see? He's okay. But that's a problem. We need to see that they were divided, but they weren't. When they said he was a good man, that didn't mean they believed on him yet. Some would come to that, praise God. And why was this true that they were not even openly speaking? Verse 13, because of the fear of the Jews. Why? They would have been cast out of the synagogues. They would have been ostracized from their families. And so as Jesus comes up privately, they're looking for him, not to believe on him. They're looking for him to kill them. They're looking for him because they're confused. They're looking to him, as we've already seen, to get more bread. They're looking for him to get what they can, but they don't want what he has. There are professing Christians that are looking for Jesus, and I want salvation, but stay out of my life. I say, Pastor Dan, that's pretty bold. Absolutely is. But you need to realize that that's what's going on today. When Christ says that when he comes back, will he find faith on the earth? I believe that there are many. And you know, the ones in Matthew chapter, uh, in in chapter 7, where we see them saying, but Lord, Lord, these are people that are professing Christians. Lord, Lord, have we not done this in our name? I don't even know who you are. All you did was want to get all your benefits, quote, unquote, from me. I don't know who you are. I wasn't in all of those miracles that you did. That's reality. Let me ask you something. You say, I have trouble talking to people about Christ. Who do you fear? What do you mean? They wouldn't talk publicly because they feared the multitude. When Paul was put in prison with Silas he sang. When he was possibly going to be put to death We find that Christians in Scripture rejoice that they could suffer for Christ. Today, we want to avoid that in our families, in our neighborhoods, in work. I might lose my job. Let me put a balance to that. If you're hired to do a job, do your job and do it as unto the Lord. Don't use that as an excuse to not do your job, that you want to be a testimony for Christ. Because of the way you do your work, you should be a testimony. But you should be ready to speak for Christ and not fear. Who do you fear? Your your neighbors? Your family? Your fellow workers? You might lose some family relationships? Are you going to stay focused on what God wants you to do or are you not? Where's the line drawn with you? They had a line. Okay? And then we move on. What happens? As we begin to move on in our text now and pick it up in verse 14, we come to the amazement at his teaching. Verse 14, But when it was now in the midst of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began to teach. You see, he didn't hide himself, so when it says in secret, it wasn't that he didn't go before the public, it wasn't that he changed his disguise, he just came up alone, privately. And what's the timing? The timing is now God's timing, and I believe the word there is well put. Uh, Probably in English, I would put the word middle, because I think that's the way it can be translated. And what you find out, is in the middle of the feast, what? He's in the third of the fourth day. We saw it was already a seven-day feast. Somewhere around the third of the fourth, what does he do? He comes right into the temple. He comes right into where the rabbis would be. He's not running away from them. And what does he do? He teaches. He enters right into the discussion, right there, right in their midst, and he's teaching. Now, we need to understand a little bit. He didn't disrupt the service. Go with me for just one moment to Acts chapter 13. I think this might help us maybe a little bit. Go with me to Acts chapter 13. Look at verses 14 and 15. This is uh, the Apostle Paul, actually, but in verses 14 and 15. But going on from Perga, they arrived in Pisidian, Antioch, and on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue. And what did they do? They sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent to them, saying, brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, then say it, I'll say it. And all I'm trying to give you, now, that's a picture of the synagogue, yes. But it was very common that what would happen is the rabbis would teach, and then they would comment, and they'd give another opportunity for somebody to teach. So when you go back to chapter 7, the Lord Jesus Christ, I don't want you to think that he's disrupting, like throwing over the tables the situation at all. No. He's gone in, there's been opportunities, and he has now an opportunity, and so he joins right in and he teaches. And notice their reaction, verse 15. The Jews, therefore, are marveling. Why are they amazed? Listen. Not only can he do miracles, that amazed them, right? He turned the Bread so that the simple loaves turn into providing for over 5,000. He raised an impotent man. He changed the water to wine. That's amazing enough. Now they're not only amazed by his miracles, which are the evidence of who he is, they're now amazed by what he's teaching. They're amazed by what? The depth of this understanding that in their mind, this cop and his son's coming in the midst and teaching. And they're, they're basically marveling. And what do they say? I want you to catch this. They turn around and say, hey, how can this be? Why? A man become, how has this man become learned? He never got educated. Now, don't take that wrong. That's not saying that the Lord Jesus Christ, obviously, was an uneducated man. In their mind, he was. Why? He didn't go to their schools. He didn't get their formal training. We need to understand that today and what he's dealing with here. They looked at the Lord Jesus Christ, and they said, hey, wait a minute. Gamaliel, did you teach him? They didn't have this conversation. Please understand. I'm giving you some teaching. Gamaliel, uh, was he under your schooling? No. Really? Well, where did he learn this? Have you ever seen him study the scriptures? No. Was he at your school? Was he at your seminary? Was he over here? No. I don't even listen to him. No. They said, listen to this guy. He knows what he's talking about. But he didn't receive their schooling. The source of his teaching comes in verse 16. Jesus, therefore, he knew what was going on, answered them and said, my teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. His teaching came directly from God the Father. We know that, but turn with me to chapter 8, by the way, which is still the feast. Go to verse 28. Because in this feast, the light of the world is going to come out of it eventually. Jesus therefore said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he. See, it's not just a good man. You'll know that I'm the one that was sent. And I do nothing of my own initiative, but I speak these things as, watch this, the Father taught me. Jesus had been telling them since early on in John that he came from the Father, and that's why they were after him making himself equal with god and now he's saying the depth of my teaching has come directly from the father i want you to notice something else before i make some additional practical comments his teaching was not a self-taught situation why look at verse 18 he who speaks from himself notice this seeks his own glory he made it very clear in verse 16 that his teaching came directly from the Father. He was not only not educated in their system, he was not just a self-study, self-trained man. Those type of people exalt themselves as well. His teaching came from God. Let me say a couple of things here. He was not a genius in his own mind. He was not seeking to exalt himself. Neither had he received training in their schools. Education is important. But I'll tell you this, as a pastor, I don't know how many times, but I constantly get this whenever I meet somebody new. Where did you go to school? Where did you get your education? And I have been in environments where when I said, well, I didn't go away to such and such a seminary, they do not I don't know if that's the reason, but I've had people, pastors literally walk away and they start a conversation with somebody else. The difference does it make where, you know, it wasn't educated in their system. That's, education is important. As you know, my son's gone to seminary and so forth. It is important to get education. I, I am one that it, am always behind that. And I think a fool is behind not getting an education because it trains you from many, many areas of life. However, when it comes to the things of God, the most important education for every single one in this room, not just for me, is that which comes directly from God. You say, praise the Lord, I'm going to get all these visions. No right from this book. He got it from the Father and now we have this book. And that's what is important. It's not what school you went to. It's not what seminary you went to. And I say that to good men that are sitting in front of me as well right now that have a seminary education. I'm not putting it down. But that's not the key. If that's what you're going to live on, you're in trouble. And I'm in trouble. You see, we have the same dangers today. We have people that are proud because they're self-trained. Really? Well, maybe I know what they mean by that, but we need to be careful with that one, because we can then exalt our ministry, what we have done. Look what I've done. Look what I've done. Be careful with that. There is a big danger today, and I I myself can get caught in this. We need to be careful. And people are turning around saying, well, this is what Schofield says. This is what Ryrie says. This is what Whitcomb says. This is what MacArthur says. This is what Lawson says. This is what Sproul says. This is what Calvin says. This is what Moody says. This is what Spurgeon says. And there isn't a one of those men, listen to me, a one of those men that we should not respect, because they're men that God has used in a great way. But if you're living off that, you're in trouble if I'm living off that. What ought to drive us, and I'm going to tell you this right from my heart, what drives me personally, I have got actually, to be honest with you, right now three different rooms in my office that have books in them, tapes, and all of that stuff. Three different rooms. Those are all wonderful tools. But if I spend time, and I will say as God is my witness, I don't. If I spend more time reading them, than reading this, I am useless to you. And there are people in our congregation that spend more time reading them than reading this. This is what should drive us home. This is what drives my soul, and that's a truth before God, is knowing what this book says. And that responsive reading that we had this morning, let me remind you, again what it says. I'll read it to you in Psalm 119. Because the Lord Jesus Christ got his teaching directly from the Father. You will be smarter than even those people that we quote if you know the word of God and you know it rightly divided. How how I love thy law. It's my meditation all day. What does he say? I have more insight than all my teachers. Why? Because I've read this book, or I've read that book, or I've listened to these people. No, for thy testimonies are my meditation. That's what I memorize. That's what I quote. I have restrained from every evil way. Why? Because I observe your precepts. I have more understanding than the aged. Those people who have gray hair or little hair. How do I do that? By knowing the word of God rightly divided. Do we need to study? Yes. This book. This book. The first priority, I will say this to you, for a man or woman of God, is not where they got their education or what they've read. It's God's divine calling on the life. And it's that they know the word of God. Know the word of God. We need to have education. We didn't read verse 105. Most people know that one in our responsive reading. But that's a wonderful verse, because it's the word of God that's a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And that's what will guide you in life. You need to understand that. And the Lord Jesus Christ didn't go to their schools. He was kind of an outcast to them. And what happened, he says, my teaching comes from God. If you, listen to me carefully, have one hour a week. I'm trying to make it as practical as I can. If you're not a reader and you struggle and you only have one hour a week to read, you are better off spending the hour broken up every day in this book than spending an hour reading anything written by any human author whatsoever. And it doesn't mean you don't learn from them, their tools, their guidelines. But this is what will give you insight to the word of God. What distinguished the Lord Jesus Christ, obviously he was the Messiah, but he makes very clearly, my teaching came directly from the Father there is no revelation it's not independent of the father and that's the danger with some churches today because there are some self-proclaimed ministers who basically say that they get revelation from god and it comes directly no there's no more revelation outside of this book right now talk about the kingdom we got a different situation but right now this is all god's given us all of that to lead up to he was focused how was he focused because His instruction came from the word of God, so I bring you back to that, what I started with. You will be well-focused on the things of God when you and I spend our time knowing what God wants and then doing it with the help of God, by the grace of God. What's the prerequisite to understanding? It's verse 17. Verse 17. For if any man is willing to do his will. Some translate that uh, just to do his will and so forth. It's willing to do his will. It's dealing with faith. Willing to do his will is faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. We know that. Without faith, there is no salvation. There comes a point in our own practical life. When I talked about the pressures of family, when I talked about the pressures of the multitude, when I talked about the leaders, All of those areas that put pressure in my life, your life, all the time. What is it that will help us to get through? To be ready to know what God's word says, and then to be willing to apply it, and not worry about the consequences. And just say, that's what God wants. God, give me the help. Give me the power. He's given me the indwelling Holy Spirit to be able to do that. You know, the problem, the issue, is not lack of knowledge. It is not lack of information. It's the lack of faith. If you will, it's rebellion. It's rejection. What do you mean, Pastor Dan? These people had all the knowledge they needed. The Lord Jesus Christ gave them all the evidence in the world as to who he was from his miracles. He gave them all the evidence in the world in understanding by taking the word of God and rightly dividing it and teaching them. They had all the knowledge. They had all that they needed. They had all the evidence. They absolutely rebelled and they absolutely rejected it and they weren't willing to accept it. How are you and I in our very practical way in our devotions? Do we go to the Word of God, honestly, wherever you're reading, I don't care where you're reading in the Word of God. When I go to the Word of God in the morning and I begin to read or in the day or whatever it is, nighttime, and we begin to read, do we go there and God I'm going to read the word, help me, no matter what it is, if it affects my life, to obey it. Or do we go to it and say, well, I don't know. If I do, I'm, Maybe I misunderstand it. I don't know. That's going to change something if I, if, I, if I follow that. I don't know if I can do that. That's not willing to do God's will. That's not willing to be changed. You're kidding yourself. That's rebellion. It's rejection. And these people, it cost them salvation. At least some of them. I mean, to say some of them because some of them evidently came to know the Lord Jesus Christ later. You know, today that's the same thing. It's not that people don't know who Jesus Christ is. It's being proclaimed. Are there areas of the world where we just saw that in a missionary conference, where the gospel is still being brought? Yes. But it's all over the place. It's not that people don't know how to obey God's word or what it says in family life or what it says in work life or what it says. We have all kinds of knowledge. It's lack of obedience. It's lack of yielding. It's it's lack of obeying or being willing to do it. And I'll come right back to salvation. The Lord Jesus Christ shed his blood on Calvary. The Lord Jesus Christ satisfied the righteousness of God, the demands of the law. He fulfilled it. The price has been paid. He's the only way. He's the truth. He's the life. He's the only way to God. That's the knowledge. That's the word of God. If you're not saved this morning, it's unwilling to. Now, I understand God needs to open up the heart. But there's that juncture of also responsibility in a man. You just won't believe it. You just won't accept it. Now, you say a dead man can't accept. That's correct. But God brings those two things together. And you need to understand that you need to be willing to do God's will. They weren't. And he says in verse 18, he who speaks for himself seeks his glory. But he who is seeking the glory of the one who sent him is true, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Then he comes back to the law, says he's seeking, they're seeking to kill him. Notice how bad it got, verse 20. And in fairness to the multitude, maybe they didn't know. Let me just allow a little grace here. Maybe they didn't know that the leaders were trying to kill him because it's the multitudes that are speaking here in verse 20. It's possible. But do you notice where they got to? He's a good man. He's divided. You have a demon. A demon? The son of God? A demon? What a position to be in. Where are you today? Where is the Lord Jesus Christ in your eyes? A good man? A good teacher? Simply a historical figure? Someone who can give you a ticket to heaven, but you don't want anything to do with his life? Or is he the God of scripture? Is he the one that left his father and came down? Is he the one that was taught of his father? Is it the one who taught us truth? Is it the one who is the only savior? Is it the one who you committed to and willing to commit your eternal destiny to? That's what's needed for salvation. But fellow believer, as we started off, for you and I to be focused, for you and I to be able to focus on what God wants us to do, we can't be focused on all the pressures around us. We need to be yielded to the same savior that we've trusted in and obey him. And we need to be willing to do his will so that husbands, yeah, love your wife as Christ loved the church. Not just love your wife, but as Christ loved the church. Impossible unless you're willing to do it, and impossible unless you're willing to yield. Wives, submit to your own husbands in all things. Yeah, but, and you got your long list of things. Issues with scripture, not with me. Workers, do you work as unto the Lord, not with eye service to those who are watching over you? Yeah, but you know, my boss is not a saved man. Doesn't change it at all. Can't do it without God's power. Treat your neighbor as you would yourself. Yeah, but you don't understand my neighbor. You don't understand what they do to me. You see, even in the practical outworking of the Christian life, we need to be willing to do God's will. Let's pray. Our Father in God, I thank you and praise you for the example of the Lord Jesus Christ and his focus. I thank you that he stayed in accord with your timetable, even in going up to the feast. And as people saw him teach, all they could do was stand in a maze, not because of the education he received in this world, but because he was sent from you, taught from you, came and offered salvation. And Father, while people's reactions may be different, we pray that you would open up the understanding of those that might be in our midst that have not yet come to Christ. Ask them honestly who they fear. Do they fear their relatives, people at work? What will happen if they trust in Christ? Help them to get over that fear and help them to be willing to do your will and to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Help them to come to salvation today. For those of us who have known you and do know you and, Father, who have just celebrated the Lord's table, help us to remember the cost of our salvation. Help us to remember that we also need to be willing to do your will, that we need to be willing to obey, to follow you, to imitate you, to do whatever it is that you called us to do and to stay focused at that task at hand, not to be so encumbered with the weights, as it says in Hebrews that would weigh us down, but, Father, that would be yielded to the Spirit of God, filled with the Spirit of God, and have a victorious life that brings honor to your name, victory to our life and true satisfaction to the soul. Help us to do that. Empower us. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.